part of being an actor is learning to reconcile with the concept that you are frequently unemployed. That is award-winning actor, director, and artistic director, Seth Barish. And I'm Lee Foster. You're listening to Action, the no-bullshit podcast dedicated to the pursuit of acting excellence. I have big plans for this podcast in 2019, but I really need your help. Please pause this episode, go to your podcast app, scroll down, and rate this podcast. You see, the more ratings I get, the easier it is for me to find great guests for this show. Thanks a lot. Happy New Year. Enjoy this episode. All right. Well, Seth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. This came about because um, I was asking some of my listeners on social media who they wanted me to get on, and your name came up. A couple of the uh, uh, audience members called your book a game changer. Nice. Yes. Happy uh, Happy to change games. Yes, absolutely. So um, I'm just going to introduce you quickly. Seth Barish has been a professional acting coach and teacher for more than 30 years, an award-winning actor, director, and artistic director. He spent the last three decades focusing on techniques that maximize spontaneity and bring performances to life. Some of his TV credits include recurring roles on uh, Damages, The Sopranos, Veep, Mozart in the Jungle, Billions, and more. And he is the co-founder and co-artistic director of The Barrow Group, which is an award-winning New York-based theater company and training center. Seth says, Our alumni includes a lot of stars, but it also includes literally thousands of dedicated and inspiring actors that at some point along the way became fascinated with the kind of acting that's invisible, where you can't see the technique. Tony Hale, Emmy Award-winning actor, buster on Arrested Development, Gary Walsh, on Veep said uh, the Barrow Group exercised the work of acting and finally brought its true potential back, play. And he goes on to say, I'd say that was my most significant training. The foreword of the book that you wrote, An Actor's Companion, Tools for the Working Actor, I'm just going to read the very last bit of the foreword, which says, there is a muscularity, not to mention wisdom and truth to Seth's techniques. He is a wonderful teacher, and I know that having him as my first guide is one of the luckiest things to have happened to me in my career and life. And when I can't get back to class with him, I'm so grateful to have this book to turn to. I hope you find as much value in Seth's lessons as I do. Anne Hathaway, January 2015. So... You're the co-founder of the of the Barrow Group. Is it Barrow or Barrow? Yeah. How do you say it? Barrow, like Barrow. wheelbarrow. Okay. Can you just talk briefly about the Barrow Group? So the Barrow Group started in 1986. I was living on Barrow Street. It doesn't mean much more other than the fact that I was living on Barrow Street when it started <laughs> um, as a name. Coincidentally, Lee Brock, who's the co-artistic director of the Barrow Group, and uh, really one of the driving forces, if not the driving force from the get-go, has uh, also coincidentally lived on Barrow Street when she first got to New York. So there's that. And the group part is not a coincidence. Um, the reason we called it that was, uh, there were, you know, at the time we were literally going, well, there's the Wooster Group, uh, you know, it's another ensemble-based company. And when the Bear Group first began, it was a resident ensemble. It started with nine actors, and then it grew into a group of about 20 that were um, 
a combination of actors and directors and designers and playwrights. And then somewhere in the mid-90s, there was uh, quite a large number of people who were interested in getting involved in what we were doing. And uh, the interest was mutual. We wanted to be working with uh, so many people. And so we decided to shift away from having a resident ensemble. And it became more of an a open community that's ever-changing. It centers around a, an aesthetic that is based on, as you're, you said in your intro, maximizing spontaneity and effortlessness and applying and exploring a way of working that with luck feels invisible so you can't see the technique. It doesn't feel like you're watching an actor, but rather like you're in the room with a real person who happens to be doing something. And uh, that's the idea behind it. And I arrived at that over the course of many years, and I wasn't alone, but the, um, the history of it really is that I was in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA and uh, had been doing a lot of theater and music stuff in high school. And, and uh, I, I had a, an extraordinary high school teacher that basically immersed us in the equivalent of a conservatory program. And we, you know, I, so I had had a fair amount of exposure to things, but, you know, I was obviously quite young. And at, when I was at UCLA, I saw a play that was a student production. And about a third of the cast were acting in this way that I had never seen before, where I just couldn't tell that it was scripted and it didn't feel like performing as I knew it. It felt like I was kind of a, like the fly on the wall and someone was, there was real. And, and uh, I had a strong uh, emotional response to the performance and I immediately sought those people out and over the course of years continued to work and play with them and we formed a theater company actually in Los Angeles and, uh, and then I had an opportunity to come to New York and I did that and I had remained fascinated with that kind of performance style and then found over the course of years that there were other people that had an equal fascination with it and also were quite good at it, many of them better than I, and, and I ended up gravitating towards those people and over the course of time decided that we wanted to have a place to continue that exploration. And so we, uh, I, I put together a, a wish list of actors, the people that, um, that I, I would love to be involved in a group, and they consisted of people that I had either studied with or uh, worked with in semi-professionally or worked with professionally or had I had seen, like I had been in the audience and I had seen them and I just kind of kept their names and contact info, and I contacted them in 1986 and said, um, hey, we're going to, if you're interested, we're going to be forming a group just to explore this stuff, but without any commitment, we'll just meet once a week for one month. And and then at the end of a month, we'll reevaluate. So we did that, and at the end of a month, everybody wanted to keep doing it. And so we kept doing it and with an understanding that we would reevaluate re at the end of a year if we got that far. And at the end of a year, we reevaluated it, and everybody wanted to keep doing it. But many people felt strongly that we had to start producing and sharing it with the uh, world so that it wasn't just completely insular and, and uh, 
that's when we started the Barrow Group Inc. and what became known as the Barrow Group Theater Company. And that was in 19, uh, 1987 was when we incorporated. And uh, we started a school in 1990 approximately. And here we are today. Wow, that is just fascinating. Um, okay, well, uh, now if you could talk about your book and why you wrote the book, and if you could uh, explain the structure of the book, because it's different than, than, uh, than most uh, acting books, which is, uh, thank you. Thanks for, 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 sure. for doing that. I appreciate that. Because I hate, <laughs> I hate most of them. <laughs> um, so I wrote the book. Uh, I was just thinking that I, I keep saying similar things, and then as you teach, you, with luck, practice getting more and more clear and more and more precise, and and uh, I was on a theater gig working as an actor out of town. This is this is back in 2000 uh, at a regional theater, and I had, I ended up doing three gigs in a row there. So I was up there for I don't know many many months. I feel like half the year, and uh, I was bored out of my mind. And I said, well, maybe I should just jot down all this stuff that you know I've I've been exploring and talking about, and maybe that might be a book. And then I came up with the concept of coming up with 99 tips or tools. And uh, I, I knew I, I would, the format to me was something that was, I, I was clear from the get-go and it was based on two things. One is just in a general sense, I have a very short attention span when reading. Um, there are uh, on occasion things that grip me and, and, I, and I, 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 my attention span improves. But in general, like short, fast, and sweet is is my style. Um, and I had read a book called About Acting by a guy named Peter Barkworth, which I think unfortunately is out of print. But um, it, it was a completely different style of book. That book was based on basically tips by famous actors. And uh, Peter Barkworth was a famous actor himself in the UK, at least in the theater world. And he would, you know, be working with Lawrence Olivier or Edith Evans or all these Ralph Richardson, John Hurt, all these famous people, and he kind of glean tips from them and then uh, write it in his book and attribute it to them. And uh, it wasn't quite as uniform in length. Some of his chapters were a little longer than mine tend to be. That said, it was all bite sized What I found is that some of the information in his book. I didn't necessarily much respond to, but some of it spoke to me deeply, uh, just really useful. I went, oh, that's a great tip. I want to try that. And so I remembered it, and I went, well, if I ever write a book, I want to make sure it's this short format and that it's practical and usable on the job. And that's what was the guiding uh, principle behind the creation of the book. The book itself was written in two chunks, really. Um, the first half of the book was written in about two weeks, and the second half of the book, uh, first draft, was written over the course of maybe four or five weeks. And then very gradually, I spent a year and a half or so uh, rewriting. And the way that happened is I would send the chapters out to trusted friends and colleagues and and just say, you know, make any notes or edits or comments or anything, and they would send it back, and I would get the comments back, and I would, I would sit down and just 
make changes. And it, w it wasn't any sort of uh, in the in the second phase of this that year and a half phase. There wasn't any like concentrated time of me sitting down for hours and hours with it. It was more like I would get feedback, sit down on my computer, and immediately make some changes, and then uh, that kept. And so there was a there's a thank you list at the end of the book that lists off. You know, I don't know how many people. It's quite a few people that really contributed into uh, to making the book. Um, show up in the form that it, it exists in now. I wish I had found this book when I first started acting because uh, it would have saved me a lot of torment um, because I, I think like many people, when they start acting, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I thought, I'm, I'm not cut out for this. It's too, I can't wrap my, my mind around these, these principles that I'm reading about and I'm I'm learning about in class, and I went through years of thinking, I am not cut out for this. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Until I found um, another book that finally made sense, which was Ron Morosco's book, uh, Notes to an Actor. And in many ways, it's, it's kind of similar to yours, uh, where it's just practical, short chapters that just make sense. Yeah, so, so thank you. I think, that, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of garbage out there. Um, it's rare to find to find books that are not. Thank you, thank you, sir. And you know, obviously, really glad that it it's helpful. That's the whole point for it to be helpful. So yeah, glad it's helping. So um, I want to talk a, about some of the uh, some of the tips, the tools in your in your book, and I'm just going to give you the the tool title and just let mm -hmm. you uh, let you go. So um, why don't we start with uh, Respect the itch. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, I uh, I had a teacher in, in college at UCLA, a guy named Michael Gordon, and he was uh, he was this old, re real interesting character, and uh, he was a had been a member of the group theater, which historically was a very prominent theater uh, that had a lot of huge theater figures involved with it. And he was, a, I believe, at the time, a, a stage manager with them. He went on to become a director in, in, uh, in film and television and had a, had a pretty good career. Um, he used to, uh, when we were teaching, when we were in a class, um, you know, I was just a student, and, and uh, he would sometimes make an observation, and, and the actor, an actor on... Uh, on the you know stage, we'd go, oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, I knew that, yeah, and and he would promptly go respect the itch, and the idea that I, at least, got from him again and again and again is that, you know, we often have a sense of things that might be niggling at us or that we we want to address, things that we could possibly do to make things better, and and yet we frequently sort of ignore that little whispery voice in us that, that says, hey, this is something to do. And it's a, just, I think, a useful reminder that if, you're, if, if your inner voice is telling you something, that something needs addressing, it probably does. It probably would benefit to give it some attention and do something to, to uh, alter it so that things get better. And so it's really a reminder to just listen to that voice as opposed to uh, suppressing it. Often our, our little inner voices have a lot of wisdom that we may not even understand. Yes. Um, you have a section of your book uh, with uh, tips on monologues, and I wanted to talk about a couple of those, uh, or have you talk about a couple of those. Don't eyeball the wall. Yeah. 
So, you know, monologues, um, first of all, in, in general, are a really interesting uh, form <laughs> where usually we're enacting these things where if you were uh, fully doing the, the pieces would from which they come the the you know the scenes and stuff there's usually people that you're talking to and it's obviously you know really nice and neat and much easier to be talking with somebody they're saying and doing stuff it stimulates you you respond to it when all's going well it's effortless and, and all that and then you step into a monologue situation all of a sudden you're talking to somebody who's actually not there and sometimes or many times what actors do and I'm not really sure why I used to do it too I, I and even even though I've lived this out I, I I'm not sure why I did it other than I had some idea that well I better place the person I'm talking to somewhere and then I better place them somewhere where people can see me and then if I was talking to somebody well I would see them so I'll just look at wherever I place them and just kind of stare at this wall and in doing that unfortunately a couple of things might happen one is that you're looking at this nothing you know a, a spot on the wall or whatever and your brain's telling you like there ain't nothing there that's a spot on the wall um and yet you're all of a sudden going, you might find yourself thinking but there's supposed to be something there and right away you're hard at work trying to create something and then judging it and going wait a minute this isn't working out there's, there's nothing there and so it feels kind of bogus and fake to you and of course, on the audience side, they see precisely that. They see somebody fixating at space, and they start to wonder, like, you know, is, there's no, really nobody there. So I, I, I hope, you know, but but I'll I'll pretend too, and and it gets it it can get awkward and effortful and all of that. And so there's a a way to uh, to address that, which is that you know just. First of all, remind yourself that, you know, a monologue is really a dialogue. They just never get around to talking to the other people. Usually it's that way. And uh, you can kind of place whoever you're talking to somewhere. And then when you're playing, you kind of, this may seem weird, but you kind of avoid looking at them. You know, on occasion, look over there and stuff, but don't just stare at the nothingness. And I found, and it seems to that a lot of people find that when you do this, it's kind of easier to believe that there's somebody there, uh, for one. Number two, when we're talking in real life, we pretty rarely just, you know, stare right at, um, you know, somebody when we're talking. It's kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in general, when we're talking, we, we tend to look around. You know, when we're listening, statistically, we probably look at people more. Uh, but when we're talking, you know, there's this sometimes a tendency to look around and stuff. And so when you're doing this thing of avoiding eye contact a little bit with whoever you're you're talking to, wherever you place them, it starts to feel both uh, more like real life, both to you as a player and for people watching. And uh, and then you're not engaged in this big process of denial that, you know, what you're seeing is actually not what's there and or vice versa and, and all that. And that's the principle behind that. On the same subject of monologues, you have a, a chapter called Start to Yourself. You know, starts of anything tend to be fraught with a bunch of expectation and, and anxiety and tension. You know, here I go. I better be good. I hope this is interesting, all, all that stuff. And um, a lot of times that, that kind of tense 
anxious ridden beginning is sets you off on a weird path, you know, where then as you continue in, in talking, as you're, you know, if you're performing a monologue, um, it, it, it's sort of based in this sort of tense start. Um, and relaxation tends to be, in my experience, a really, really good thing. And so one thing that helps both you relax and an auditor relax is to kind of give yourself permission to start the monologue later. It's a mind game, of course. You're, you're starting the monologue, I suppose, the second you start talking. But, you know, you, you, you just sort of tell yourself that, well, we'll get to the good stuff later. And I can just kind of start talking and, and not, not worry about anything and just kind of even talk to myself a little bit with these few words that are, that are written. And, and uh, you kind of ease yourself into the communication that will kind of organically evolve. And it takes that edge off the start. When, when you do this in theory, and it seems to work in practice. It tends to work pretty well. Um, all right, well, I wanna, uh, I'm going to interject some listener questions. One of the people who suggested that I, that I try to get you on the show was a listener named, uh, and pardon, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but it looks like uh, Sukhdeep Bhuti. I don't know if that's right or not, but uh, hopefully it is. And um, he originally said, if you can get Seth Barish, his book... An actor's companion is a game changer. Um, and then he said, Hi, Lee, I want to thank you for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. As with the question, when did he realize he needed to come up with his technique? I've known for a while that there was something too intellectual about the acting techniques people use, but it wasn't until I read Seth's book, along with Ron Morosco's book, that I could put stuff together. Well, I don't know that there was a point where I realized I need to come up with a technique. It was more that I, uh, as I said before, I was fascinated with performing when I couldn't see the technique at work, and I really felt like I was watching a real person, and I just wanted to figure out how to do it. And then as I was doing that, I, I, I started to pay attention to things that seemed to help that happen. And I suppose that's how technique amasses over the course of time. And of course, a huge factor was the the Barrow Group as a company was at first, as I mentioned, a resident ensemble of actors. And so we were exploring this stuff all together and started to refine you know, an approach. So there was that going on. The other thing is that um, there's a couple of traits that I have, and I think a lot of people have them. And one is that if something is asked of me that's really complicated, I have difficulty executing it or performing it. I, I, I just, I don't quite get it. And then I, I start to try to do this complicated thing. And then I experience, um, you know, the failure of that. And then I, historically, I would sort of beat myself up about it. Like, oh, I guess I'm just not smart enough or capable enough to grasp this and maybe this, you know, there's something wrong here. Uh, and conversely, when I would come across things that were uh, simple and concise and everything, I found that, hey, I can, I can do this pretty well. This is, this is working out. And so I started to gravitate towards that in, in all things. Um, also, my background is really eclectic. I have, uh, in terms of training, I have studied in every and kind of environment, not that I can think of, but boy, most of them. And um, 
And so I was able to draw from a lot of uh, sources to find these various kinds of tools that um, seem to help and, and that might seem like it's a technique. I don't even think of this stuff as a technique or a specific methodology. It's just a collection of things that work. That said, I did start to notice common threads uh, through the years. And then the other thing about me is my, my parents were um, both educators. And my father, at one point in his career, used to teach people how to teach. And so I picked up a lot of stuff vicariously through them in terms of communication uh, and what uh, constitutes useful communication and what constitutes problematic communication and what sort of things contribute to people communicating better. And that is something that started to weed its way both into my, into my uh, daily interactions with actors live in a room and verbally, but also in writing down ideas. There's an awareness of, you know, certain kind of language can, can actually uh, complicate things and, and trigger off, for lack of a better word, defense mechanisms and uh, inhibit people's ability to take in information and, and make use of it. And conversely, other language might encourage a more openness and allow people to take in information in a more comprehensive, simple, useful way. One of my favorite words is the word grok. I don't know if you know this word, G-R-O-K. Do you know this word? No. So it, uh, it comes from a science fiction book, actually. is a book by Robert Heinlein called Stranger in a Strange Land. And he was, uh, he was intending to create a Martian word, and that's why it's spelled G-R-O-K. And in his story, there's this guy who's on Mars who happens to be human, but he was raised by Martians who are some other species. And there's some big war or budding war or something. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I read the book. Between Mars and Earth. And so they send this guy, Michael, down who's this human raised by Martians, to be an ambassador and interact with the Earthlings. And when he arrives on Earth, all the Earthling you know, higher-ups and muckety-mucks meet this guy and say, Michael, we need to tell you what's going on. And within seconds, he would just go, oh, no, I, I grok it. And it kind of means, I get it. And they would say, no, 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 Michael, but, but there, there's much more to this. And he'd go, no, 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 I, I, I'm, it's all good. I grok it. And it's something that I completely understand. Sometimes when I'm Teaching a class, if I happen to use that word, somebody asks about it, I'll, I'll say, you know, well, here's something you probably grok. If I said to you, you know, hey, hey uh, take off your shoes, <laughs> okay, no sweat, and they do it. If I said to you, on the other hand, something like, you know, hey, find nirvana, you, you, all of a sudden you're like, wait, time out, uh, I just can't do it. And much of what I was exposed to in actor's training was leading me to that latter part where I just felt like I was dealing with this big thing that I'll never crack and never understand. But then I had some things that I had some success with that were much simpler. And I went, you know, maybe there's a way to look at all of this stuff from a very simple lens and find ways to communicate with others and myself in a simple way. And that might lead to, you know, better results. And that's sort of the, the driving thoughts behind the entire uh, approach. But as I said before, I, I don't know that it's fair to call it a, a technique. It's just a, a bunch of stuff that's all designed to help your acting get better.
I grok it. All right. So uh, another listener, Tim Ashby, asks, I'd love to know his tips on how to use the fear that will inevitably come up and what he advises performers to not let their impulses slash instincts get stifled. Yeah. Well, um, impulses slash instincts stifled is a more complex question because that can happen in so many ways. But the fear thing, I can certainly answer pretty succinctly, uh, understanding that, you know, I don't know that there's one answer to this, but this is what I find very, very useful. There's a concept in hypnosis called reframing. And the idea is that instead of changing a particular behavior or thought pattern or anything like that, one thing you can do is basically change your perspective on it by considering why might it be good that it's happening. So if I'm going into an audition, say, or a performance, and I'm find myself terrified or gripped with fear, understandably, I might go, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be a problem. Or if I were reframing, I can look at that and say, I wonder if there's a way to think about this differently. And then I'll start to ask questions like, why is it perfect for the situation, the dramatic situation that I'm supposedly enacting? Why is it perfect that this character might be terrified and nervous and anxious and the funny thing is because, you know, scenes and plays and screenplays tend to be written around things that are po- potentially dramatic, you usually find a reason. And then all of a sudden that fear, instead of becoming this problem, is like your greatest fear. It's like, well, thank God I'm afraid. I don't have to act that at all. It's just happening. Um, and so I found that this sort of constant reframing uh, helps. I, I, I actually consciously will use that when I'm auditioning myself at times, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll note like, Ooh, gosh, for some reason I'm kind of anxious going into this. And then I'll right away go like, okay, why is it perfect that that's happening? And then I'll hmm. take a look at the, at the situation written in the story of the script. And it's almost always there. And I go, and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm glad. And two things happen. Then it, one is it either abates and moves into something else or it doesn't abate. And that's just fine because it really is, is uh, one less thing for me to have to even think about. Hmm. I'm going to ask a question now of my own. Uh, in your book, you talk a lot about uh, uh, distracting yourself with things, and that often will assist in making your your audition um, or the scene uh, look more natural, more more realistic, less like acting. Yeah. Like playing with things, playing with a pen, folding clothes, picking your fingernails, something like that. Uh, does that apply in television auditions for you? Yes. Uh, I will usually size up what, if I'm playing anything, I usually ask uh, myself contextual questions, which is kind of, some people call it the five W's or something, you know, who's in the scene, who's around, uh, where does this take place, what's the immediate location, what's the geographical location, what time of day is it? What time of year is it? What year is it? What happened in the previous circumstances that would be extraordinary and relevant to what's going on? And also just what is it? So I have a, a kind of something I might call a snapshot of it. You know, like if, if this were a scene that we were playing right now, I'd be like, what is this? It's like, well, it's a, it's a podcast interview. Great. Um, and then armed with that information, I start to think of what are things that 
I might do or that anybody might do in that context. And I usually will come up with things to do. And in an audition, I will come up with the audition variant of it. So, for example, if a scene were set, if I went in for a film and television scene and were set, say, at a bar, you know, I'm obviously not going to be there with a bar or any of that stuff, but I might purposely get, uh, you know, bring in a, a bottle of water. And uh, while I'm playing, I'll, I'll, you know, take some sips from it and drink, and it is killing two birds with one stone. It's distracting me from being self-conscious with luck. And uh, it's also telling the story of somebody who's in a place where they happen to drink, uh, which is appropriate for the scene. So I, I will routinely come up with the audition variant of picking an activity and having a prop that I can use to engage in that activity with. Do you ever get told, lose the prop? Um, ever in my life? Uh, probably once, twice maybe. Um, I, I think that... <laughs> it's funny, you know, they have a lot of, uh, there's, a, there's a whole slew now of, uh, in New York they call them one-on-ones and uh, situations where casting directors will offer classes and people go in and casting directors will opine on whatever they think they're supposed to do. But I actually find, and in these environments I, I hear people coming back to me going, well I was told to do this or that or never do this or any of these things. But on the job, I've uh, a lot of these you know, apparent rules that people are somehow learning don't seem to often apply. I, there's, there's a lot more leeway. Um, here's something I've never seen happen, you know, because, because I'm on both sides of the production, meaning sometimes I'm directing or, and as, as a result uh, involved in casting or sometimes I'm an actor and on that side of it. When I've been on the other side, I have never, ever, ever seen, not once, somebody go, that actor was amazing, but he, he just used all those props, and forget it. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nor have I seen, that actor was amazing, but, but, too, but they didn't have a prop, so forget it. It's just, if somebody comes in and they do uh, a good job, the, you know, they're going to be noticed and... and uh, Everybody's looking for somebody to help them make their project better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not run into that. Clear, I just want to make one thing clear. I, I said before the audition variant, and I meant that. In other words, if I was auditioning for a doctor, you know, doing an operation, I'm not going to come in wearing scrubs and have a scalpel. Sure. I'll, I'll just, like, I'll just, you know, grab a pencil and, and make some tiny little drawings on my sides or something so that I'm involved in a, in a, you know, in a fine motor skill mm-hmm. while I'm talking, you know, so I'm saying, you know, I give me a scalpel and I'm doing all this stuff. But um, I know this is a pencil and I know that this, this, this particular fine motor skill of maybe drawing a, a little circle on my sides is not really brain surgery, but it shares in common with real brain surgery a motor skill. Does that make sense? It does. I, uh, I once went to an audition where the role was uh, a construction worker and I saw mm-hmm. an actor come in with one of those um, fence post diggers that are like seven, <laughs> seven feet digger, tall. Yeah. You know, a huge <laughs> thing that you stomp down into the ground. <laughs> uh, did he cut a hole in the, in the casting director's office? I don't know if he did, but um, I didn't get that job, so maybe he did. <laughs> um, okay, I got one more uh, listener question for you. Uh, 
Jose Ramos says, highly, I understand that every role requires something different of us, but I'd be interested to know as an actor, what are the steps and things he does in his preparation for every role? Also, as a director, what does he expect of his actors? That's a big one. I do not believe there's any one way to approach this stuff. I think the bottom line is whatever works is what works. And I know plenty of actors that uh, do just basically rely on instinct entirely. They don't even think about anything and they do just fine. And then I know other actors that ha have very meticulous ways of working out and works out well for them too. So I think the trick is to familiarize yourself with you know, techniques and, and approaches and then find out what works for you. That said, for myself, uh, if I'm on the actor side of things, I ask contextual questions and answer them. I, um, that will lead me to usually pretty specific choices about costumes and stuff so that I, I uh, you know, with an understanding that I'm working with designers, so I take my lead from them. I'm not one of these people that say, I need this. Um, if I have an idea of something that is a different than what the costume director has in mind. I might pitch it. I might say like, you know, I was thinking this could be possible, but I don't know how you feel about that. And if they, if they're open to it, uh, sometimes that's a collaboration. That's nice. Um, most of the time what they come up with is just fine by me. And, uh, costume designers know what they're doing. Usually I think it's, it's a, it's it might as well take advantage of their skill sets. Um, and then, I do think of acting as, you know, doing stuff, you know, we, to act is to do is the old saying. And so if I think of that as an actor, it's like, okay, I'm going to learn these words and be clear on what this situation is. And then I'm going to come up with stuff to do that might uh, be appropriate. And so I tend to be sequencing basically tasks and activities uh, so that, uh, I end up with a performance that feels real to me and to somebody else wa watching. And as I, or as you said before and pointed out the, that distraction can be part of it. And as you're giving yourself things to do, it kills two birds with one stone. One, it takes your attention off of monitoring yourself and being self-aware in this way that's kind of peculiar to life. And it also is telling a story so that if they, if you see me, you know, holding a scalpel and doing a fine motor skill, you're getting a whole story of somebody who is doing engaged in an operation. And so if my lines are, you know, I didn't see with the park the other day and it's in the scene, it's written during an operation and I'm doing that stuff. My job is to go, all right, right. I'm going to do that. And sometimes it, it involves for me anyway, getting specific about when I'll do it. It's like, you know, when I get to this line, I'll engage in that particular activity and I will with consistency unless you know the moment hits me and I want to do something else I will like comes time for that and this is the where that part of the script and I'm asking you about what you did in the park the other day and I have this to anchor me it's a meaning like it gives me some uh, some kind of map road map but I also am completely free to think whatever feel whatever say the line however and all of that in terms of expectations of myself or other actors, I'm directing, uh, I'm hopeful that they're as free and uh, 
real as possible so that they're doing a lot of that work that I was just talking about proactively. They're coming up with their own things to do. They're not locked in line readings in any way. They're not concerned about what they're feeling at all. Uh, they're just sort of listening and responding and doing stuff. And the idea is that that gives room for all the real thoughts and real feelings that they have to just kind of do their thing without any manipulation and effort. My hope is that we're all building a story together that feels effortless, does not feel like somebody worked at it. I saw this great uh, quote. In a, in a, there's a documentary that's on uh, PBS right now. It's a documentary about uh, on American Masters, I think, about Yitzhak Perlman. And there's a scene where he's cooking for Alan Alda. And he's talking with Alan Alda about every time he, he, he plays a note, literally every time the bow comes to the, to the uh, violin, it's completely new. It's a completely expression of what's going on right there, right then. It has nothing to do with anything he's practiced or thinking about, you know, technique-wise when things are going well. And he asked if it was the same for the actor. And Alan Alda said, oh, yeah, it's the same for, for me in acting. And he said something. He goes, I hate when I feel like I'm watching a reporter. And I immediately identify with that. It's like, right. I, it's, to me, a, it's a different experience watching somebody who's like done a bunch of research and they're just sharing with you their research that they've done and, and they're executing their plan. That's a specific kind of experience. I much prefer when things are truly spontaneous. They're, it's like, that's happening right there, right now. There's nothing that is fixed about that in any sense. And so I'm hoping that actors are working in a way that allows for that. Hmm. Wow. All right, uh, Seth, we are uh, just about out of time, but I do want to get to one last listener question. And that is, uh, actually, before I get to that, uh, I just want to say um, to the listeners that um, we only touched on, you know, three uh, chapters, uh, but the book is, is all of those uh, tips. The entire book is made up of those tools uh, that are accessible and applicable and uh, I'm really excited about it personally because the way that I'm going to use this book is that when I get an audition, um, I will do the work that I normally do, but then I'm going to go and flip through this book and it's going to give me ideas for things that I can just try, that I can try in the preparation of that audition and try one. Does that work? Maybe, maybe not. Try another one. Does that work? Uh, no, that one doesn't work so much for this. Try this one. Yeah, that works. I like that. Okay, I'm going to, you know, and I, I can do that. It's a... It's just it's a, it's full of ideas for me uh, for things I can try when I'm preparing for auditions. That's the way that I'm going to use it. Sounds good to me. Yeah. All right. So last question. This is from uh, Tatanka Omani. I hope that I said that right. Um, and this is a big one, but you've been really good at answering these big questions. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how you do. Uh, what are the most important choices to make in pursuit of an acting career? A lot of times, you know, the longer one is in this field, the more often you're going to be encountering people that have nothing to do with this field. And they'll ask questions like, you know, what's it like to be an actor? And what is it that you do? And all this stuff. And one of the things that seems to come up a lot for me is I say, well, part of being an actor is learning to reconcile with the concept that, that you are frequently unemployed. And in a capitalist society, that's quite a challenge to, to not have that, you know, start to 
tangle with your sense of self-worth and, and uh, you know, what are you doing in this life and, and all that stuff. So for me, part of the trick is to turn your intention onto things that really matter. And for me, most of that has little to do with anything acting related. I have my own personal passions where I care deeply about uh, making sure that we're mitigating climate change or making sure that suffering in, in any way for any people is, is as uh, minimized as possible and trying to understand uh, how people think and, and to expand my own sense of compassion and, and uh, see if just in this world people can get good things done and including myself and this to me is relevant to preparation or I should say participation in an acting career because it's that kind of awareness and practice that comes in when we're not working and allows us to have a center and it also comes in when we're working because if I'm expanding my own sense of compassion and, and centeredness then when I'm playing and, and mixing together reality and pretend, I, I'm sort of in good practice. So a character tells me something, you know, like, hey, I, I just came down with cancer and I have so many things to tap into without thinking about it at all. I immediately think about, oh my gosh, there's real life things that come up with my dear loved ones who've wrestled with cancer and uh, there are uh, imaginary things that I've thought about and there are things that have nothing to do with cancer that I happily flash on and think on and I just think that if you make your life rich your acting career will follow suit in in some way I have no idea if there's a direct relationship or even indirect relationship with finding work and that although my own experience is that there is indirectly I, I've just become you know I'm a parent I have two kids and one of the things that I find really nice when you're parenting is that you realize that anything you're worried about it just doesn't matter <laughs> there's, 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 uh, there's some people dependent on you in some ways and, and they're also their own people and it's fascinating and um, I became a much much better actor when that came into my life because I just didn't take things so seriously. And then as I took things less seriously, they became a lot easier. And uh, there was that. And there was also, I think, less, if I went into a job, I wasn't so worried about whether I got it or not. I mean, sometimes getting a job was a drag. I was like, oh, shit, I'd have to leave town. You know, I, I don't want to do that. Um, and then I found as I was not caring so much, about, I was like, hey, look at that. I'm, I'm doing better. How weird. I'm booking more. Um, so... Those are some sort of random thoughts I, I have on it. The other thing I guess I could say is that in my generation, people uh, expose themselves routinely to practice, to seeing theater and seeing art and seeing films and talking with artists about what they do and, and, and going to you know museums and taking this workshop and that workshop or whatever and and uh, and then you know, being in situations where you could actually act um, a lot. And if, if it wasn't coming our way, we would make it happen. We would say, let's just do a play. Um, or nowadays, you know, let's, let's make a, a webisode or a short film or a feature. 
Um, I think this is really useful. You know, the amount of content these days that is self-generated, that actually turns into something that the masses see is, it's an astounding amount. Um, when uh, I, I do a lot of work with a, there's a comedian, a guy named Mike Birbiglia, and I do a lot of work with Mike. I've directed his four solo shows. I've worked with him on his various films. And whenever we're kicking around a solo show idea, uh, you know, the kernel of something that will become a show, we're not saying, you know, how do we get this produced and everything? We're just doing it. And so, you know, that old saying to act is to do also metaphorically could mean just keep doing your artistic stuff. So there's that too. To find out more about Seth Barish and the Borrow Group, go to www.borrowgroup.org. Also, I highly recommend Seth's book, An Actor's Companion, available on Amazon. I'm Lee Foster. Thank you for listening.